folks, and welcome to Redeemer this morning. We're so glad you're here to uh, share in this day together. I invite you to uh, hear these words as we begin worship this morning, the words from the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the, first bo- he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is the head of his body, the church. I think sometimes it's so easy for us to get swept away in the busyness and activity of the church and of our personal lives that we forget... um, that for those of us who claim the name of Christ, Jesus must have first place in everything. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the Lord of our individual lives. So today, may we give him our full attention as we sing and as we pray and as we worship his name. Will you bow in a moment of prayer with me? Lord, we come together in worship today recognizing that we are just beginners in faith And we also acknowledge that you are the head of your body, the church. You are the firstborn from the dead. You are the one who brings hope in the midst of our despair. You are the one that can bring light into our lives in seasons of darkness. So begin a new thing in us today, in new ways of thinking, new ways of living, new ways of being a church that impacts this community. We pray this together as a people who long for peace, your peace, the peace that passes all understanding. So meet us in this time of worship today and bring, uh, bring life into our weary souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the second week in this new three-part teaching series entitled, Enlarging Our Capacity for More. And today we're going to be talking about gratitude, and we're going to reflect on a story that Jesus told from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, We're in the middle week of our annual stewardship emphasis, and we do this once a year for just a few weeks in the spring to inform and challenge our congregation in the spiritual discipline of financial giving. But we also do it so that you know how your gifts are making a difference in the lives of people every day locally, in this community, and around the world. Serving God through the local church has been part of my life since um, the earliest days of my childhood, and I just can't imagine uh, a life without being involved in sharing Jesus with other people and trying to make the world a better place uh, by giving my time, my money, my talents uh, to God, to the God I serve, and I hope that's true for you too. 40 40 years in ministry, I've seen all of those in churches. It's uh, kind of funny. Have you ever dreamed about what it would be like if you won the lottery? Or maybe the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Do you ever think about what it would be like to be instantly rich? I read some time ago about an Indian tribe in Minnesota that made enough money off of their bingo and gambling operations in one year to pay each member of the tribe $400,000 in that year. And I found myself thinking, wow, (laughs) just think of what you could do with an extra $400,000 a year. What would you do? Buy a new car? 
Take an expensive vacation, remodel your home, buy clothes that you've always wanted without having, you know, to shop for bargains. Sometimes we spiritualize uh, a windfall like that and we say things like, I could just, I could give a lot more to my church. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've been promised, literally promised by someone if they just win the lottery. They're going to pay off all the church's debts. They're going to build the new wing of the church. The extent to which we find ourselves sending in the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes entry or the frequency with which some of us play the lottery as we daydream about getting rich is the extent to which we need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul today in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because we probably have at least a trace of what Paul calls the love of money somewhere down deep in our souls. Now, if you're still not convinced, if, it probably wouldn't hurt to add that, uh, you know, baseball that was once called the America's national pastime has been replaced by an over $500 billion a year obsession, and that is gambling. Gambling feeds the self-indulgent instant gratification mindset that has plagued America in recent decades. And beneath its glittery surface lurks the parallel tragedies of increased addiction and decreased devotion to spiritual things. Gambling has been described as a bankrupt abandonment of reason and religion, one where in the long run everyone loses. More than 55 million Americans play lotteries at least once a month, spending over $88 million a day, more than they spend on groceries. So as Christ followers, what should be our attitude toward money? I said last week that it's important to ask ourselves now and then how we want our lives to be measured. Because what people talk about at the end of our life will determine Uh, will be determined by how we are living our lives today. The truth is that the measurement we often use today to evaluate our lives is money, isn't it? While we may know this isn't what we should do, we often fall into the trap of thinking that our lives are successful when we earn more money and we own more things. We're fascinated by highly paid celebrities and athletes and other millionaires that we read about, and we're constantly looking around to see if we are keeping up with our friends and our neighbors when it comes to cars and homes and even cell phones. And what this tells us is that often we do measure our lives by how much we make and how much we spend on ourselves and our family because we've come to believe that it's money and it's more possessions that make our lives better. But deep down we know that the pursuit of more money and wealth and possessions doesn't really bring more happiness. And should we also, and we should also know that the Bible says just about the opposite. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says to us, true godliness with contentment. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing... Let us be content. People who long to be rich, he says, fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now let's be clear. Paul doesn't say that money's the root of all evil. Money is kind of neutral, can be used for good things and bad things. But our love of money, our pursuit of more money, and all the things that we think that money can do for us leads us to all kinds of evil. Greed and lust and for more of this world can leave us uh, putting our faith into the background. It can ruin families. It destroys relationships. And pursuit of more and more and more can even lead to the deterioration of our physical health. So while money itself is not evil, and while earning a good and honest living is godly and it's honorable, it is our love of money for selfish gain and pursuit of more money that ruins lives. So wealth and possessions does, often does become the measure of who we are. So back to the question, how will you measure your life? Will it be measured by how much you earn and keep and accumulate and save during your lifetime, or will it be measured by how much you give away. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about how important giving is as a measurement of our life. In the, in the parable of the talents, he tells in Matthew chapter 25, it's really kind of a classic example of talking about the kingdom of God. And I think it's interesting to note that Jesus shared this story just a few days before his crucifixion. Actually, Jesus spent his last days on earth teaching in the temple, and many of his parables, many of his teachings focused on how we prioritize our life to live with meaning and purpose. Maybe he was thinking about his own life and how it would be remembered, or maybe Jesus was just passionately wanting people to hear this important message one more time before he died. Either way, he tells this story this parable that is designed to teach us something about our lives. It is a story about how uh, our lives will be measured. Hear his words. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities, and then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more, but the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, 
harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now those last, that last verse or two is pretty powerful stuff. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. So what does Jesus mean when he says that the servants were given a talent of money? Well, a talent was a unit of measure. And while it often differed from time to time, the average weight of a talent during the life of Jesus was about 75 pounds. It says that the servants were given different talents of money, and so if we assume they were given some precious commodity, now let's use gold, because I understand the gold market today a little bit, maybe a little bit better than the silver market and where that's at, so we'll just say they were given gold. One was given 375 pounds of gold, one is given 150 pounds of gold, and the other 75 pounds of gold. In today's market, that would be one talent of gold worth about $1,375,000. The two talents, $2,750,000. Five talents, $6,875,000. Now, the point of Jesus' story is that these servants were being entrusted with something with incredible value. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the master but it's given to them to care for while the master's away. And what this incredible wealth represents to us today, remember this is a story to teach us a lesson, what it represents to us is the totality of our lives. The master has given his servants talents and that is the same way God gives us the fullness of our lives. Everything that we have, including life itself and the breath we breathe is a gift from God. All our possessions and our abilities and our time and our energy and our experience and our knowledge and our wisdom can be seen as the talents that God has entrusted to us for a little while. But when the master returns or when our life is over and we have to give an accounting of our life to God and we will someday, God will ask us how we measured up. And the standard isn't how much we made for ourselves, or how big our portfolio is at the time we retire, it will be how we used what God has given us. And did we use it for God's purposes and God's glory? Yes, the servants went out and they used the talents given them to earn something and maximize the return, their return on what they were given. But notice that in the parable, they weren't doing it for themselves. They, did, they didn't keep what they earned. They gave it all away. They gave it back to the master. And in like manner, God gives us the fullness of our lives, and then he says, maybe even pleads with us to use everything that he's given us. 
but not for our purposes and selfish purposes and our you know, well-being, but to use it primarily for God's purposes and God's kingdom. So when the servant who had five talents gave his master those five and five more, he's praised. And when the servant who had two talents gave his master those two back and two more, he is praised. But when the servant who was given one talent just gives that one talent back to the master, he is condemned because he didn't use what the master had given him and he didn't give the master anything back in return. And what we see here is that the measure of these servants' lives wasn't based on how much they earned, how they earned it, but on what they were able to give and what they were able to give back to God. And one of the messages of this parable is that our lives need to be measured not by what we earn and accumulate, but what we give, what we give back to God, what we give to others. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 12, 15, when he said a person's life does not consist of the abundance of their possessions. The first century church taught this message when they quoted Jesus by saying, it's a greater blessing to give than it is to receive. So what does it look like for us to measure our lives by what we give and not by what we make? Well, the answer to that is, uh, we have to find, is that we have to find ways to measure what we give, and the best place we begin is to take a look at our bank statements. Since money often does become the measure of our lives in the culture today, we need to start by asking how much we give. And we do that by looking at how much of our resources we do actually give away. People have said that if you wanna know your priorities, look at where you spend your money. If God is a priority in life, does our bank account reflect that? What would it look like or should it look like if God had first place in our life? All through the Bible, you see, the tithe has been used as a standard of measurement of our faith and our trust in God. And the word tithe just simply means one-tenth, and God asks us to give one-tenth of what we have back to him as a sign of our faith and our trust. It's a symbol of God being a priority in our life, and it's a good place to start as a measurement of our giving. For many people, giving one-tenth to the church or to the work of God seems like an impossibility because of our limited and sometimes shrinking incomes, and we tell ourselves there's just not enough to go around. We spend all that we have on our homes, on our health care, on our cars and food and clothes and everything else we need in life, and there's just no room left to give money to God. But if we make giving to God the priority and give our tithe to God first, we find that there is room for everything. Some of you have learned that in your life as you've begun to tithe and begun to, to give to God. You've discovered that you know, God makes a way where there is no way and all of a sudden there is room for everything else and our spending habits sometimes have to change and our priorities sometimes shift, but in the end, everything fits. The message of Scripture is that our giving to God needs to be our top priority and it needs to come first. And these offerings in the Bible were often called first fruits for a reason because people were called to give to God first. And that call was a pretty smart one because if we don't give to God first, we find that statistically we don't often give uh, much of anything to God. So the big question is, what are you giving to God? Are you giving God for, out of the first uh, of your income? Are you giving whatever might be left over after everything else? If we look at it for a moment in reverse, I think this is kind of interesting. What we see is that God 
is a generous and giving God. All through Scripture, God is painted as a generous and giving God. And God says, I want you to keep 90% of everything I've given to you. See, it all belongs to God in the first place. God says, I want you to keep 90% of everything I've provided for you. Our government doesn't do that for you. Maybe 10% was the amount God knew would challenge us but not overwhelm us. I don't know. I just know that it has been the call of God from the beginning, and it's a true test of our faith and our trust. And I would invite you to think this week about what you're giving to God. Are you anywhere near to giving 10% of all that you make and earn and accumulate? How about 10% of your time? You know, we're all given 168 hours a week. Do we give God 16 of those hours in worship, in prayer, in service to others? Okay, take eight hours a day out for sleep. That still leaves you with 112 hours a week. Do you give God 11 hours a week in worship and in prayer and in service to others? What about the talents that God gives us? Are we using our abilities for God and for God's purposes? Are we using our expertise and our experience and our wisdom and our knowledge for God? If not, how do we start to measure our lives by what we give back to God and not just what we've been given? God doesn't just call us to give back to him through his church. He calls us to give to others. In a word, God calls us to be generous with all that we have, and to use the fullness of our lives to bless other people. As we reflect on our lives and where we spend our money and how we spend our time, how much of our lives are we really giving away? How can we keep giving to those in need as a focus and a priority in our life? Now, if you were here last week, you heard me introduce the opportunity that we are exploring to be a multi-site church, a church in more than one location. I mentioned uh, last week that we are seriously exploring the adoption of First United Methodist Church in St. John's. Someone asked me this week, they said, I heard we're buying a church in a congregation. No, we're not buying anything. We're exploring the adoption of a congregation. And if we move ahead with this plan, that congregation will become Redeemer Church St. John's Campus on July 1st this summer. We don't have all the details worked out as to how we'll staff the St. John's location, but I can tell you initially that Pastor Tim and I will be sharing duties at both locations. Their congregation is currently worshiping somewhere between 50 and 80 folks has a budget that currently can support the facility, but not a full-time pastor going forward. They don't have a lot of young families at the moment, or children or youth, but they do have a significant outreach to the Hispanic community in St. John's. And moving forward with this opportunity will require several things on the part of our congregation here. First of all, for some of you, this is a new thought. And we'll take some getting used to. It's not all that common among churches in our area, but multi-site churches have proven to be an effective means of reaching out to people and plugging them into a local church in their community. Now, our vision here at Redeemer is kind of in three parts. Our vision says that we believe that God has called us to focus on being a church 
that both churched and unchurched people love to attend. Secondly, we believe that our outreach and presence in the area should transform the values and the culture of our community. And third, we believe that God will use Redeemer Church as a catalyst for renewal and transformation. And our passion is to assist other churches in becoming healthy and vital congregations. Now, you know um, that there, you may not know this, but there are only uh, 12 single campus churches among the 100 largest churches in America today. Um, that means that 88 of those 100 churches, largest churches in America, have already multi sited. Smaller churches with 100 to four or 500 in worship, and that's us, are going multi-site at an increased rate, not just the big mega churches, but churches like us. The participation rate of volunteers has increased 88% in multi-site churches. There's more people to serve, there's more to do. 85% of multi-site churches have grown since they have started a satellite campus. And 47% of multi-site churches have a campus in a small town or a rural area. Now, if you read the New Testament book of Acts and the development of the early church, some have seen the planting of churches by the Apostle Paul as at least in the beginning creating satellite churches from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the mother church. And Paul began, began planting churches all across Asia Minor, churches like in Antioch and Corinth. One church in many locations. Our own history as United Methodists started out with circuit-riding pastors who provided leadership for several congregations. And one multi-site pastor claims that the move from horseback preacher to multi-site pastor is simply a shift in how we define circuit riders in the modern era. Now second, this new venture will require our commitment to give and to serve, maybe even in a greater way than we're used to. Now I'll say more about the opportunities to serve next week, but know that some of you may be asked to help get this new venture off to a good start and make sure that we're on solid footing going forward. Am I nervous about all this? Yes. Am I excited about it? Yes. I'm excited about the possibilities that God has in store for us in this new opportunity. Already several of you have stepped up and said that you want to be part of this new ministry, and I appreciate that, but we're going to need to hear from more of you in the weeks ahead. You have always been a faithful congregation when it comes to giving and to serving and I pray that as we make our financial commitments to this ministry next week, that it will reflect your response to this new thing that God has been, is doing here at Redeemer. This week is a great time to start thinking about how our lives can be measured by how we give, and if we can take that one step up toward giving a tenth of who we are to God. If we will do that, I believe that God will measure us not by what we make or earn or save or accumulate, but by what we give to God's kingdom and to others. And if we can make this the measure of our lives, then at the end of life, the word that we will hear from God is the one that we heard in the story. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant.
Let's pray. God, you've given us many, many gifts and talents. Help us to use them in the work of your kingdom. You've given us the greatest gift of all, and that is Jesus Christ. Help us not to reject the gift, not to bury the gift, but to take a step of faith and believe and follow you in obedience in every area of our life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.